This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. We are very concerned that the Americans want to impose sanctions on South Africa if South Africa signs the copyright bill, denying blind people in this country that access. Access to information is, is important for education, it's important for knowledge, for skills, so that we too as blind people can be employed, we can contribute to the wealth and the economy of this country. We are urging the president to sign the copyright amendment bill. South Africa spent years embroiled in a high-profile effort to update its copyright law, responding to concerns from creators, the education community, and the visually impaired that the long-standing laws did not serve the national interest and were harming creativity and access to knowledge. Its parliament ultimately passed progressive reforms in 2019, but the bill languished on the desk of President Cyril Ramaphosa, who faced enormous trade pressures from the United States and European Union to not sign the bill and stop it from becoming law. Last month, he seemingly caved to the pressure, citing constitutional concerns in sending it back to the parliament. Ben Cashton is a South African documentary filmmaker and television producer who was active during the copyright reform process. He worked with Recreate ZA, which brought together a broad coalition of creatives to advocate for both the interests of owning copyright in their own works and in fairly using copyrighted materials in the creation of new ones. He joins me on the podcast this week to discuss the decade-long reform process, the external pressures, and explains why he thinks those pressures should be viewed as racist policies. Ben, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you. South Africa spent years embroiled in a high-profile effort to update its copyright law. The parliament passed a bill only to face enormous pressure from the United States and the EU uh, against that legislation, ultimately leading to a decision last month by President uh, Cyril Ramfosa to send the bill back to parliament without granting final approval. Now, I wanted to explore the role that foreign governments played in the domestic South African process. But before we do that, you're a documentary filmmaker and producer. Can you tell me what led you to get involved in a a copyright issue and the Recreate ZA? Sure. And um, maybe I should correct you and say that officially the president has not sent the bill back due to foreign pressure. So if you want to know the the official line is that the bill is being rejected for failing to meet constitutional standards. Uh, We can get into that later. I can answer your first question, but I thought I should correct that intro in the sense that uh, we all believe it's being sent back due to uh, pressure from uh, foreign governments, and we have reason to believe that. But officially, the reason is uh, constitutional technicalities. On your, on your question, um, I've been making documentaries about um, South African history and about the struggle against apartheid. And specifically, just when um, Mandela came into office, there was a big issue over um, the debts, the apartheid debt. Um, and I made a documentary or two for international distribution about 
the money that was borrowed to pay for weapons and apartheid machinery, which then the democratic dispensation had to pay off, which is pretty obscene. And I wanted to get archive footage to put in that documentary. And I went to South African Broadcasting Corporation and said, where's the archive of all of the meetings between the apartheid presidents and the Swiss president and their other friends internationally. They had friends in the United States, I'm sure you're aware, Ronald Reagan and others. Um, You know, where's that archive? And the South African Broadcasting Corporation said to me, well, we don't own that archive. You'll have to go to broadcasters around the world who own that archive. And I said, well, why isn't it owned, you know, locally, if it's local footage of of what happened historically here? They couldn't answer. I went to people like World Television News and Reuters and those kind of people, and they wanted to charge me a huge amount of money. I can't remember what it was, but it was, you know, hundreds of dollars, which is thousands of South African rands for every 30 seconds of footage that I wanted to use. And that sort of, you know, woke me up to the issue of, ownership of copyrighted material and the sort of the the moral issues that come behind who ends up owning that material because of course um, that stuff was shot by South African filmmakers mostly black South Africans in South African townships who then made it available for almost nothing just for the price of you know a day's labor to the foreign broadcasters who then have made a lot of money you know from it over the years and that's the copyright system that we live with in Africa in the developing world, one which is um, slanted, you know, not in our favor. Right. So, and I think that that's true in South Africa. It is true in, I think, many other jurisdictions as well. In fact, in Canada, we just had a very notable court decision in which involving a documentary film in which the court found that our fair dealing, which uh, similar to some of the fair use provisions that you find elsewhere, not quite as flexible, but covers much of the same territory, could be used. And so we see the benefits of having that flexibility, in ex- at least in Canada, in exactly the same kind of uh, issue that you that you experienced. Uh, so that, 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 so you come to this issue with, with direct experience about what restrictive copyright laws could mean. Can you talk a bit about how a South African copyright reform process unfolded? Yeah, it was a 10-year process with lots of consultation of all sections of society and our Department of Trade and Industry, a government, national government department, came up with draft legislation that reformed the old apartheid era legislation, modernized it, tried to give um, rights to creatives to make use of um, copyrighted materials for fair uses. So, you know, using fair use models from around the world, introducing open and flexible um, usages, this language of of, uh, being able to use things for purposes such as and we were really excited as um, the sort of progressive creative community, photographers, filmmakers, game coders, all sorts of people. But then there was a backlash and the backlash came from local and multinational intermediaries. So those are the record companies, um, the publishers and um you know, big movie studios in Hollywood and elsewhere who didn't like the idea that we would 
have a flexible um, copyright regime here. There's vested interests here. You have to understand that after the United States and Brazil, South Africa is the country in the world with the most concentrated economy where a few large multinationals hold um, you know, a lot of rights. So historically, all the people, you know, the small group of companies in South Africa that have historically done business with Hollywood and done business with international rights holders, large publishers, they're used to having very predictable large revenue streams, making billions of rands, millions of dollars from having those copyrights, and they didn't want that interfered with. Okay, so you mentioned this 10-year process with the with large large amount of lobbying um, certainly coming from the multinationals as well as from, from the domestic rights holders as well as the the progressive creative community emerging and speaking out uh, fall through that 10-year process where do you end up with what does the parliament end up passing we got very good legislation passed by our two houses of parliaments the national house and the provincial house like your senate and um that legislation was sent through to the president and arrived on his desk over a year ago i think it was in march um 2019 that arrived on his desk and normally routinely the president just signs those uh laws sent to him by parliament into law he doesn't really have a presidential veto in south africa um he's required to sign you know all legislation into law he's only allowed to query legislation if he spots something that the parliament failed to spot that means that the he believes that the laws are inconsistent with our constitution and um normally he'd sign legislation within you know two weeks within a month within two months but over a year later it was still sitting on his desk and he'd done nothing about it talking about a 10-year process in which presumably parliamentarians as well as many others who were speaking before parliament were able to raise constitutional issues and just about every other issue that might come up as part of a copyright reform process? It's impossible to imagine that there are constitutional issues that Parliament hadn't spotted. You know, multiple lawyers had poured over all the drafts. We don't believe there's anything constitutionally wrong with the law that was being passed. I mean, you know, it's quite interesting, Michael, given South Africans' history, to reflect on the fact that one of the objections that the President has raised is that the new law risks depriving rights holders of property. And there's a property clause in the South African constitution. I don't know what you have that's analogous in the United States, but we have very progressive socioeconomic rights in our constitution. And then we have a fairly conservative um, right to property, which was a sort of compromise of the apartheid settlement to stop sort of white business interests from losing property. You have a right to your property. And there's been huge debates over whether land redistribution in South Africa would be an affront to that right to property. Well, they've decided now, the president under international pressure has decided that a progressive copyright regime might risk depriving rights holders, publishers, record companies, movie studios of historical property. And, you know, in response, we're asking, but is intellectual property 
property in any case, in the sense of, you know, something that you have an absolute right to and you cannot be deprived of because, you know, surely as there are reforms in copyright and other sort of regulatory environments, environmental law, all those sorts of things, it affects the value of your um, holdings, intellectual property and otherwise. It's not like, you know, having a piece of land taken away from you. I want to come back to the the president sitting on this legislation for a year. Um, But I think a lot of people listening would say, well, 10-year process in many other jurisdictions, the ability to get progressive legislation through uh, is something that they haven't been able to see. I I think of the battle that took place for several years in Europe uh, over its directive. You see what's taken place in Australia, where for years there have been multiple studies that have recommended fair use, and yet the ability to move that forward has been consistently stymied. Uh, why do you think the, the parliament was ultimately receptive to a more progressive approach to copyright, despite what I assume was uh, some vociferous lobbying on the other side saying this is not the right direction to go? Uh, colonialism history of discriminatory approach to um, all aspects of the global economy for 300 years, I would say, is the answer to your to your question, Michael. You know, in Africa, in the developing world, we're not net recipients of royalties on intellectual property. Almost everything that we spend on copyright, on patents around the world goes to the United States, goes to Europe, goes to to a small extent Japan um, and Asia these days. So this was an effort to say, well, at the very least, we need fair use of all of the global um, copyright and intellectual property. But in fact, we probably even need to go beyond that at some stage. Um, and, And we, as the creative community in South Africa had been arguing for decolonizing copyright and intellectual property. I'll give you a very concrete example, a textbook, a law textbook in South Africa, a science textbook in South Africa costs thousands of rands, much more than a student can generally afford to buy that textbook. How is it that those publishers can charge that very high price that the majority of the population can't afford, they only are interested in selling to a very small section of the population. Most of the textbooks um, that are used around the world in any specialist field are um, copyrighted in the United States, in Europe. Is that because there are no smart scientists in Africa? No, but it's because the means to control the international knowledge economy have been vested in a few countries historically. Okay, so you see this, uh, you, you see this backlash take place. This, this vision of, of of a copyright law of intellectual property laws uh, that better reflect the national interest as opposed to the interest of others. Parliament proceeds to to pass it. What's the what? And, and then, as you say, it sits on the president's desk, despite the fact that typically it would be passed into law. Um, what do you think it helps explain the delay in in in, the, in what is typically more of a formality? Um, could be the United States trade representatives saying that South Africa will be denied access to trade benefits and preferences that most of Africa enjoys if we pass the law. Direct threat from the United States 
um, similar threatening letter from the European Union. Pretty naked interference by um, others, you know, who ironically have fair use. You have fair use in the United States, but, you know, your corporations, your creatives, um, some, except the progressive creative community, don't want other countries to have it. So I think that's the explanation, just naked, you know, um, threats. Uh, I want to drill down just on that a little bit, because some people may think, seriously, on copyright, you have countries like the United States literally threatening all sorts of trade, essentially trade sanctions or the removal of of the tr- the more conventional trading approach throughout the continent on the basis merely of a fair use provision? Well, don't forget we had um, a million people infected with HIV who desperately needed life-saving antiretroviral medicines in the mid-1990s. So for anybody who doesn't think uh, the United States would be such a bad guy in a harmless realm like copyright, cast your mind back to what a bad guy the United States was and, and a few other countries in trying to prevent affordable antiretroviral treatments from reaching the majority of the population. There was a lawsuit that actually, you know, astonishingly became known as the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers of America versus Nelson Mandela, in which the U.S. trade authorities teamed up with U.S. pharmaceutical companies to try and prevent um, the prices of antiretrovirals going down um, through processes like parallel importing and compulsory licensing. And ultimately, we won that fight with the help of activists in ACT UP in Philadelphia and other parts of of the US and the world. So it's a repeat of that game. I mean, we actually have a slogan, Michael, these days, which is textbooks are the new medicines, because this is the same fight that we had to fight in the mid-90s, but now applied to knowledge as well as health. Wow. Now, you mentioned it it was a year of of legislation lawfully passed by elected officials within uh, within the parliament, yet it sits on the president's desk. What took there was the there was the intense pressure, the bullying that that you've just described coming from particularly the United States and the European Union. What was taking place domestically? Was there any response from the president or did the, the president's office say very little? What did parliamentarians have to say about this this pretty unprecedented delay? And, and what was taking place amongst those who had spent the prior decade focused on this copyright issue only to find that there was you found yourselves in this kind of weird zone where the law had been passed but hadn't yet taken effect? Well... Conveniently for those who were lobbying against the law, there was a change of dispensation, not a new political party, but just a new a new um, faction of leaders within the same party. So Cyril Ramaphosa came into the presidency and he was a breath of fresh air in many ways as a um, businessman um, and um, he pledged to wipe away corruption and bring in a more sort of outward-looking economic policy. But the consequence of that is that he has much less time for national laws aimed at sort of redistribution and setting right historical wrongs. He is, I'm afraid, going cap in hand to global investors. And in fact, you may have heard that South Africa is considering at this precise moment 
taking a loan from the IMF to deal with the extra expenditure on on COVID-19. So there's this atmosphere in South Africa of, you know, a, a need for foreign investment. So it's that new sort of moment in South Africa's political history where the priority is on keeping foreign investors happy that made it easier for the U.S. to pressure our political, you know, um, leaders to leave aside the legislation that they'd spent 10 years working on. And at a practical level, it actually means that quite a few of the officials who'd worked on this legislation have been sort of pushed aside and new people have taken their place who are more sympathetic to this agenda of keeping trading partners like the United States happy. Um, Here in South Africa, I should just note that the publishers, the vested interests, um, the record companies. There's there's also um, rights holders who are collecting societies, these, you know, enterprises that take money from those who make use of copyrighted materials like music and um, uh, journals and so on. And then they're supposed to, um, you know, give those royalties to the creators. There's a big issue in South Africa of intermediaries failing to pay over money that they should pay to artists and creators. So those people don't want to be regulated by the new legislation. And they managed to recruit a bunch of creators to sort of join their cause. So you actually see some artists, some writers saying, save our publishing industry, don't pass this legislation. That happened sort of all along. And then you look into it more in more detail and you see that the intermediaries, the, the collecting societies, the record companies and so on, have this coalition where they're actually paying artists to be on their side. They're, they're, um, you know, they've created a campaign, we say, where they've sort of bought off, co-opted artists to argue in their interests. So there's a lot of confusion in South Africa, but, you know, basically um, the president, after a year, said, I'm sending this legislation back. Took me a year to figure out that there's something wrong with it constitutionally. In fact, what prompted him at the last minute to act is that Blind South Africa, the organization that represents visually impaired people, took him to the Constitutional Court, litigated against him and said, we need this new legislation so that blind people can access Braille materials more easily with the copyright exceptions. And it was that lawsuit that obviously made the president think, damn, I better get out of this tight corner with blind people suing me. And he just decided, you know, on seeing that lawsuit, just to send the legislation back to Parliament. Okay, now that it's back at Parliament, uh, what do you what do you see? What comes next? You just mentioned even changes that take place that have taken place within the bureaucracy. Uh, where do you see this bill or a future bill going forward? There seems to be some pressure on legislators not to um, push forward with the original impetus of the reforms and to sort of give in to the international pressure and the pressure from these various rights holders. So we don't know whether Parliament will have the courage, the political will, to um, revisit the legislation, correct any small issues that the President may have raised. In fact, Parliament can just send it back, straight back to the President, saying, well, we're very sorry that you've got constitutional concerns, but we'd looked at those. And we don't think any of them are issues. If you really have a problem, send the legislation to the Constitutional Court, 
which is the highest arbiter of constitutional issues in the country. So that's what we want to happen. We want Parliament to calmly say to the president, actually, there's no constitutional issues here. If there are, they can be tweaked in a um, forum like the Constitutional Court. This doesn't need to go back through a whole, you know, multi-year process of political deliberations. We hope that's what the parliament will do. Okay, so there is that option to uh, basically send it right back again. And if there are constitutional issues, those can be addressed by a constitutional court. But in the meantime, the law itself can be can be passed as the democratically elected officials wanted in the first place. Yeah, we're just worried that they may not do that because parliamentarians may be worried that the president is worried that the United States will punish us if we pass the law. But we just hope that they will not, uh, you know, capitulate to that pressure. Yeah. Why don't we close with this? I mean, that that pressure that you describe is pressure that we see take place in a lot of jurisdictions. In my own country, in Canada, the, your story is a very familiar one because we also went through uh, a 10-year process, frankly, even lo- longer than a 10-year process, that ultimately did lead to some significant, fairly progressive reforms. And ever since then, there has been continued lobbying and pressure, in this case, to undo that. Uh, we see it in Australia. We've seen it in New Zealand. Frankly, you see it in countries around the world. Oftentimes, when they are looking to do little more in the reforms than the kinds of reforms that already exist in places like the United States, let's say with fair use or be compliant with the Marrakesh Treaty to address rights for the visually impaired. What do you think this says about the ability for countries to develop national copyright or even broader intellectual property policies that to meet their own national interest when you go through lengthy processes, ensure that you hear from everyone, and yet at the end of the day, there is this exceptional amount of external pressure with with real economic threats if you choose to act in that way. Yeah, I mean, I want to call it racist, Michael. I want to say that the United States and, you know, those... um, predominantly white-led administrations, um, you know, don't care about the rights and interests and needs of the majority of people in the rest of the world. If they are saying, well, we can have fair use in the United States and we build our creative industries using fair use, but you can't have the same rights in Africa or in other jurisdictions, it's, um, you know, it's it's a distaste and a disregard for the rights of Africans. It's a racist policy. It's a policy of interfering in the rights of other countries, not led by white Republican, um, you know, folks who are focused on um, a very narrow economic ideology, um, you know, to prevent them from doing what is good for their people. We hope that people listening to your show might, uh, who are based in North America, might call them out for, uh, you know, that that pressure, that uh, discriminatory pressure they're applying around the world. Uh, let's hope. Let's hope so. I mean, it's certainly the case that I think many 
aren't aware of what is essentially being done in their name when it comes to intellectual property policies, especially outside of their own country through things like the special 301 list. Uh, the Europeans have something of the equivalent where enormous pressure placed on, on other countries to reform laws that are oftentimes not in their own national interest. And this experience in South Africa, I think, provides a sort of a paradigm example. Ben, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.